Welcome back to the Daily Tech Start, where I share my experience working at a tech startup and the lessons I learned along the way. I'm Tony, and this is episode 18. So I just finished Sally Korchek's book, The Power of Women at Work, and wanted to share with you some of the great and thought-provoking things she says she shares in this book. So Sally Korchek is the CEO and co-founder of Elvest, which is a digital financial advisory for women that launched in 2016. She's also the owner and chair of Elvet Network, and prior to this, she was the president of the Global Wealth and Investment Management Division of Bank of America. So safe to say that she knows a little bit about being the only woman in the room, the only woman at a table. And she knows a lot also about the power of women and in the decision making space, but also in the monetary value of women. So my last episode on lab grown diamonds is actually the perfect example of one of the key threads that runs throughout her book which is the spending power of women and how this can be a mechanism for social change. So if you haven't checked it out yet, please do check out episode 16, um, especially if you're interested in how tech is changing the diamonds industry, a, a very traditional um, industry to say the least. So Sally Korchek's book has been coined the career playbook for a new era of feminism, um, which offers women a new set of rules for professional success. Um, and specifically, and I think this is where her uniqueness is, is a set of rules that plays to women's strengths and builds on the power that they already have, which is an interesting and novel way of thinking about what it takes to fit in and to move forward without pretending to be someone else. We all know that sentence, fake it until you make it. Well, she sort of flips this on its head and tells you that actually you've got some incredible powers that might be different than all the male or male-dominated um, decisions that we might be seeing lately. So I have to say I did nearly put the book down um, because it starts off way too upbeat, way too cheesy and way too American for me. Um, that said, if you get through the intro, there's some really interesting and crucial topics that are of huge value, I think, to women in the workplace and definitely worth discussing. So if you are like me and you're very European and you're not too upbeat um, and the kind of cheesy intro doesn't fit you, I do suggest that you power through that or just skip the intro um, because the book is definitely worth reading. I pulled out um, 16 points that I thought um, were definitely worth sharing with you in case you don't have the time to read the book. So the first one is this idea that no one else is talking about the investment gap. No one is talking about the spending power of women as a mechanism for social change. So we all know that women, or we, sh we should know that women make most of the decisions at home, and we also spend more money on average than men. Yet so much in life is geared toward men as the, you know, the sole decision makers. And my lab-grown diamond um, story is very telling of it. So sure, in, in this case, it was my now husband who purchased the engagement ring. But I did the research, I made the decision on the fact that it was going to be a lab-grown diamond and not a mine diamond. I spent about a month um, talking with all the different companies, doing all my research. And more and more women are taking part in these decisions. And I have to say I know very few women today who weren't involved in their ring purchase. The second um, element was bullet point two and three, let's just put it that way, or topics of discussion are very much intertwined. And it's this idea that the role that feedback plays in creating better leaders. So first thing to mention is feedback. Um, feedback plays a huge role um, in society today. And women apparently receive far less casual feedback than our male co-workers. And I have to say that I've seen this firsthand. I am generally surrounded in the tech and the political space with men. And I have to say, I do very often see male co-workers very casually giving each other feedback. And 
very rarely do I receive that same level of feedback myself. And why apparently we don't receive that kind of feedback? You might have guessed it. It's because our male colleagues are worried that we won't be able to handle it or they're worried that we're going to start crying. So I very rarely receive this casual feedback from male colleagues. I do, however, receive this. I, 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 and again, this is, you know, this is very much my unidimensional experience, but I definitely receive this kind of candid um, feedback from my female colleagues. Nearly all of my managers have been men, and I definitely feel that the feedback I've received has been very much been in the wrong format. It's either been on, you know, messenger apps like Slack, it's been late at night, out of context, no invitation to respond. And it generally the feedback has been around my perceived attitude rather than the performance or results driven. The third piece that's very much related to the huge role that feedback plays is this idea that feedback creates better leaders. So Sally points out in her book that we aren't born great leaders. And this is a skill set that's built over time and it's a result of thousands of micro lessons. And most often these are not the explicit feedbacks, but the lessons are not, you know, these explicit feedbacks that we might get in very um, traditional and very rigid formats, but rather those that happen casually around the proverbial water coolers. And here's the kicker. Women receive far less of this casual but explicit micro feedback than men. Um, what we do receive, however, is a lot of implicit feedback, like being forgotten for a meeting, left out of a discussion, being passed over for promotion. And the issue is that with this feedback, this feedback doesn't give us a lot of actionable information to work from. And we end up making very uninformed guesses. So one of the things that we can do is, first of all, when you know our male colleagues give us feedback, don't cry. I mean, that's easier said than done, um, but sounds pretty obvious. The other one is just solicit feedback constantly from both female and male colleagues around you. The thing with this is if you do go around asking for an enormous amount of feedback, you're going to get overwhelmed with the amount of feedback that's coming your way. So you do have to learn of how to prioritize this feedback. And so there's this idea that Sally suggests to listen to the critics and ignore the cynics, which I think is a huge and important piece here um, before you go off and solicit feedback from all of the colleagues you work with. Really think about how you're going to prioritize all the feedback you're going to get. And number four, there's this idea of the queen bee phenomenon. And let's say I'm very lucky that I haven't seen this or felt this too strongly in the work environments that I've you know, been in for the last 10 years. But it's this idea that many of us have most likely at one point in our career come across a more senior woman who didn't and will probably not support us or even worse, undermine us in our career projection. And Sally explains that although this is a killer 100%, it's also understandable when you look at the behaviour within the wider context. The context being that the time we live in, although things are changing, um, things like this still take place um, because more often than not, these women that came before us were likely the only woman sat at the table, the only woman invited into discussions. And so implicitly they've been told they can only be one of them. Um, so I thought that was a very good sort of reminder to think about how it is to be in someone else's shoes. In number five, we've got this idea of mentors matter, but sponsor but sponsors, sorry, matter even more. And so she mentions how she really wished she had explicitly been told um, that she needed a sponsor. And she saw what difference it made, it, what difference it meant to her to have someone in the room when she wasn't there, when she wasn't around, to be the voice and to voice their support for her. So you really do need to think about who are the people and who are the women and men that when you're not in the room are going to be voicing their support for you, which I think we 
we talk a lot about the need for mentors, but I very rarely heard people talk about this need for sponsors. Um, here's an interesting one. Point six and seven are going to be very much intertwined, similar to point two and three. And this is this idea that women are better at thinking long term and the way you combat short termism, which is really a thing that a lot of companies struggle with, is how you combat it with women who are long term thinkers. So this idea that women are long-term thinkers, um, there's often a conflict in companies between the idea that you need to deliver now and the idea that you can deliver later. And often the, the decision to deli deliver now will hurt both the company and the customers and the clients. Getting this business now, getting at the end of the quarter, doing whatever it takes so we hit our target goal or we hit our sales quota and our sales targets. Um, and the idea is that you can, this is very much... Um, at odds of taking the long-term view of what can help drive business and, sust and a sustainable growth in, within a company. Um, what allows for the repeat customer versus the customer that's going to churn. Um, so companies who want and need to be profitable in the short term will put off investing in research and development and in building relationships, which will lead um, over time to less innovation and fewer breakthroughs. And so Sally talks about that the way you combat this short-termism is by hiring more, more women who are more long-term thinkers. And I have to say, I work with a lot of men um, in my current job, in my past job. Um, my manager, um, my direct manager is a global VP of sales. Um, and he is always thinking one month at a time, one quarter at a time. And that's exactly what the business needs from him is to think about these short-term strategies to hit the goal. And obviously, all of this adds up to the long-term strategy. And I've always struggled with having that short-term thinking because my mind is always thinking about six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years down the line, down the, the, the line and what I need to get there. And I'm thinking about the small wins that will get me there. And most of the biggest deals when I was working on the sales team for, for a stint, some of the biggest deals that I bought in and the ones that I was most excited about were long-term deals that I'd been working on for two to three years. Um, and what's interesting is the way that I've seen men around me celebrate them is how quick you can get a, a deal across the line. And we worry less about that sort of the repeat customer. So all comes to say that there's neither good nor bad. You do need more long-term thinkers. And as a company, you do need people who are thinking about the two, three, six, ten-year strategy. And the way you get that is you have a good mix of men and women on the team. In number eight, you've got this idea of, you know, building a network from day one and, and specifically caring for it. The jobs you get offered and the partners that you're going to work with um, on your next venture might be four or ten connections removed from, from you right now. It's very rarely, you know, the person who sat next to you, you're the friend that you've been, you know, the person, sorry, you've been friends with for the last ten years. So Sally really does remind us to meet new people as often as we can, be of service to them, do something nice for someone in your network at least once a week. And I love that as a sort of tidbit. Um, the idea of surrounding yourself with like-minded but also not so like-minded people. Um, and these are the people who will open, you know, those unexpected doors for you. Um, it's not when you're out there looking for a job that you start, should start basically building your network. And so this idea of really doing it from day one um, is crucial. And I have to say it's one of the hardest things that I've tried to, to get some of my more junior colleagues in my past jobs um, to think about the people that I were manage I was managing um, your career is not built between the hours that you spend behind your computer sending emails your career is built after work the people you hang out with the people you are you know put in touch with and introduced with so in number nine we have 
and I have to say, I absolutely love this one because I've never thought about things in, in, in this regard. Um, Sally says to forget this idea of the best person, best man or woman for the job strategy and rather focus on how do we put the right team in place. And I absolutely love this idea and I'm not yet surely for why, although I have a couple of ideas. Um, I'm specifically going through, you know, cross-company, big retro, um, after cross-functional, um, wide project um, that we've just wrapped up. And there's been lots of debate about the best person for certain jobs within the project and the best person to lead the project. Uh, when actually I, I do believe in the strategy that we should be focusing on, did we have the right team in place and how can we put together the right team for these sort of cross-functional and cross-company um, objectives? And so at the end of the day, startups really don't need heroes. They need functional teams that can tackle together just about anything. And you need a diversity of these teams. You need realists versus optimists. You need newbies versus the people with tenure. You need those that are analytical versus those that are creative. Have a mix of American versus European. And obviously you need your mix of man versus woman. And, and this framing will also help diversify teams rather than adding people who just look like their managers in charge or who just look like their colleagues. It also avoids the pitfall that is the token woman or token person of colour, which often adds a lot of stress to the person um, and comes with huge social isolation as well as pressure to act like the majority. And fitting in doesn't add the diversity needed and yet, sadly, that's what that token, that token person generally feels like they need to do. It is very, very lonely to be the token woman. I can't talk about being, obviously, the token person of colour, but I can talk about being the token woman at table. It is very lonely because you don't always want to stand apart. It's absolutely exhausting being the only one fighting for, you know, the belief that you have. And I know this when I'm talking to, you know, a group of men who are looking at, short-term goals and objectives and you know sales targets and I'm probably the only one thinking about long-term benefits and long-term targets at the end of the day this is exhausting um, so it's exhausting and it's lonely and there's no reason um, you should be a token anything so when you think about that mindset of putting the right team together you are thinking about that diversity you are avoiding those token um, having the token woman the token person of color the token European and so you are avoiding these people feeling that isolation, which I think is great and a benefit to everyone at the end of the day. Um, this is a super important one in number 10, which is this idea that we often don't uh, get a lot of margin forever. So definitely plan for that margin forever and, and even better plan so that you avoid it totally. And what I mean by this is if you have too many plates spinning at once and you've, you're always working on this is an actual capacity and I'm proud to be actual capacity the day you get sick the day your kids get sick the day anything unexpected happens those plates start crumbling and start falling down one by one and creating that horrible domino effect um, so always make sure that you're not working at capacity and you leave that bandwidth or that time or whatever's necessary to be a human being and to be able to manage all the stuff that will arise during the day because trust me every single day there is something that appears that you just didn't plan for and he, the last one is one of uh, my absolute favourites from this book. Um, Sally calculated the cost of mansplaining. Because yes, it's a big cost. There is one to start off with. And it's a pretty big cost. So according to Elevate Network, um, the Elevate Network survey, um, nearly half of the women reported being mansplained to at least once a day. Once a day. Which is crazy. 
and according to the Business Insider, because when I heard, when I read this, uh, the cost of man thing, I did some research because I really wanted to share this, but I didn't want to share it if there had only been one amount of research. So there's been a couple of researchers around this. So there's another one, which is the Business in Insider research, and, and they did a pretty good job at not only calculating it, but really breaking down the cost. So mansplaining actually costs the US economy 200 billion US dollars a year in lost productivity. And Shane Farrow in 2015 broke it down for us. So if there are 80 million men, she says, over the age of 20 in the US, let's say 60% of these men will mansplain based on the anecdotal evidence that we've seen. And the average mansplainer does this for, let's say, five minutes a day. And I think that's being generous. Um, let's give the average worker productivity of 70 US dollars an hour. There are warm possibly, these are going to be warm possibilities, possibly conservative numbers, but that gives us about 102 billion um, a year in lost productivity. And we're going to have to double that to 204 billion because we're assuming that there's both a speaker and a listener in this equation of mansplaining. And I think, and what, what's fascinating and why I got very excited about this is because I fought back at all of the conversations that I have had recently. Um, in I think back at the latest project. So I worked on a project recently, which was around the GDPR, which is a new regulation that came into place on the 25th of May of 2018, so this year. And it was a huge project that we were working on. And obviously a lot of our customers had a lot of questions. And most of our customers, again, being in the political and campaigning space, um, were men. And a lot of them wanted to have some time with me to talk about GDPR and they had a bunch of questions that they needed to ask for me. And I think back at nearly every single one of the conversations I had because I remember mentioning this to my colleagues that nearly, I would say, seven, seven maybe eight calls out of ten the call started with the man explaining to me what the GDPR was. So this is the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, um, what it meant, what it stood for. Yet they were calling me so that I would answer some of their questions, but they couldn't help themselves than to explain what the GDPR was to me and in depth. And they probably did this for 20 to 25 minutes at the start of every single call. So it was fascinating for me to think about that lost productivity and how much that would have cost them. So there you have it. Um, those are the 11 points that I thought was definitely worth, that were definitely worthwhile sharing with you um, that I took from Sally Korchek's book. Um, it's definitely worth reading if you haven't already. Um, and, it's and I'm happy to dig into some of these topics if you're interested in it. Um, hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>